Hello, welcome to another edition of the Churches of the New Testament podcast, in which we seek to explore what we can know about the churches that are described in the pages of the New Testament and how they relate to our faith in Jesus today. I am Ethan, very glad that you've joined us. And we now are able to move on to the church in Thessalonica. Thessalonica, in modern-day Greece, ancient Macedon, Macedonia, um, is an interesting place. It is a very Greek city, a cosmopolitan city, and the gospel came there in great affliction and has a lot of lessons for us today. And a lot of the lessons that we would gain from it are things that we may not expect based upon a lot of the things that we hear uh, continually uh, from our fellow Christians. Uh, to understand a little bit about Thessalonica, it is located in modern-day Greece. It's on the north end of the Gulf of Salonica. Uh, it was the capital of the Roman province of Macedonia. It is about 73 miles southwest of Philippi, but 100 miles when you take the Ignatian Way, the major road that rode through there. And it's about 915 miles away from Jerusalem, and 185 miles northeast of Athens. Uh, so again, we consider it Greece today, but in the ancient time, it was considered Macedonian, um, not nearly with the same age or heritage as uh, classical Greek cities of like Athens, Corinth, Sparta, places like that. Uh, but in its time, Thessalonica is a very uh, good port city. Uh, it's on a rich and well-watered plain uh, on the Ignition Way, which is a very important road in the Roman Empire. And if you were going from west to east, it would be the first port city that you would come to. And that's why it was very uh, populous and prosperous, because uh, then as now, when you want to ship goods, it's always easiest to do so over water. And so if you were going to uh, be so minded and you were trying to get for, uh, going west to east, you would uh, want to put your goods in at uh, Thessalonica since it's the first port. And if you were going east to west, you would wait to take it out of port uh, in Thessalonica, so you'd have to transport on land uh, the least possible. We believe that there are about 200,000 people who lived in Thessalonica, and it was a very rich city on account of its trade. People would come in and, and go out often, and it was very cosmopolitan, therefore, and very connected to the rest of the Roman world. Uh, like we said, it does not have a significant of a heritage. It was only founded in the year 316 BC uh, by Cassander, one of Alexander's generals, and named after his wife, Thessalonike, who was uh, also the sister of Alexander. And it is the greatest city in Macedonia by the first century, full of paganism of the day. There is a Jewish neighborhood likely. There is a synagogue there, so there's at least enough of a population there to have a synagogue. Uh, and so it's a very strong contrast with Philippi. Philippi was a Roman colony, had a lot of Roman soldiers, uh, but Thessalonica is a bustling cosmopolitan commercial center. And the city still exists today uh, in Greece. So what happens with the church in Thessalonica? So Paul, after he had uh, suffered the beating and all the suffering in Philippi in Acts 16, uh, passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia uh, and arrives in Thessalonica. And in Acts 17, we're told he, as according to his custom, entered the synagogue. Uh, and for three Sabbaths, he uh, demonstrated to the Jews there that Jesus was the Christ. That And Luke tells us a lot of the Jewish people believed and many of the Greek proselytes, well, the God-fearers. Uh, that we call them, and many of the leading women. But we're told that the uh, Jews of the city became jealous. They incited the city. They led forth uh, many of the brethren, especially Jason before the city rulers. Uh, and they said that these brethren had turned the world upside down. They were teaching disobedience to Caesar because they said that Jesus 
was the king. He was Lord in Acts 17, 5 through 7. Uh, the claims troubled the rulers of the city, but they received some money from the brethren, and the authorities let them go, and Paul and Silas, they sent off to Berea by night. There, uh, Paul would spend some time in the synagogue there, was driven out by the Jews of Thessalonica, and ended up in Athens. So the question for us is, how long is Paul in Thessalonica? Uh, Luke says he reasoned with the Jews there for three Sabbaths. That in itself would be between two and a half weeks and four weeks, depending on uh, how long he was there um, in terms of when those Sabbaths fell. Uh, some believe that uh, Paul may have been there for much longer since he was employed there, according to 1 Thessalonians 2.9 and 2 Thessalonians 3.7-9, and that he received two packages of aid from Philippi while he was there in Thessalonica in Philippians 4.15 and 16. Uh, but those are all very speculative. Uh, in Acts 18, when we see Paul in Corinth, he immediately finds work there um, and sets up preaching the gospel full-time when he could, when he could in Thessalonica. Um, the fact that Luke actually gives us a specific time frame is significant because he rarely does that. And so even if we are not comfortable with the idea of a three-week visit, we should not suggest that he was there for much more than a month or two. He was not in Thessalonica very long. He did not have a lot of time in order to uh, provide a lot of instruction and, and things for them, especially compared to his time in Corinth and other places. Um, he realized that the church was left in difficult straits. And in fact, he got to the point in 1 Thessalonians 3, 1 through 10, that he despaired. If even they maintain faithfulness. He was worried that the tempter would have would have taken their faith from them. Uh, and so that's why when he was in Athens, uh, he sent Timothy back to Thessalonica to see how they were doing. And uh, because Timothy came back, and the report Timothy came back was the reason that the letter of Thess First Thessalonians was written. So First Thessalonians is written probably from Corinth around 51, very possibly the first book of the New Testament written. And especially when we consider other churches that we've seen, you know, Galatia, and uh, even Philippi, where the likely amount of time between when Paul started working with them and the letter sent was a far longer one than what we have here with the letter to the Thessalonians. And it's very likely that it wasn't much long afterwards. We don't know exactly how long afterwards. It may be a few months or a year later. <clears throat> he wrote Second Thessalonians to the same brethren, probably receiving further news from a letter or a messenger. Uh, the rest of the time that Paul worked with the Thessalonians correlates to what we see uh, similar with the Philippians, that when he visited Macedonia uh, while dealing with Corinth uh, in 2 Corinthians 2 and 7, uh, while he's staying in Ephesus in between 55 and 57, he probably stayed or, or visited Thessalonica. He also most likely visited Thessalonica once or twice in 57 after he left Ephesus and before he went to Jerusalem around the Acts 19 and 20 time frame. Uh, when Paul uh, was writing to Timothy, he said that he was going to Macedonia in 1 Timothy 1 and verse 3, and so to probably spent time in Thessalonica there. Uh, we don't see any other visits recorded in the scriptures, and so Paul likely visited Thessalonica uh, maybe three or four more times after the church there was established, and there's, there's still churches there to this day. Uh, however, we don't have as much witness about them in later centuries, especially second century as we do other churches. Uh, so, when we look at the Church of Thessalonica, we see that it was founded in the crucible of persecution. I mean, let's again go back to uh, however long Paul was there. If you want to imagine three, four weeks, uh, up to two months, uh, Paul is forced to leave quickly. And he, he leaves the Christians having not been there for a long time and also in a worse position. If you remember in Philippi and other situations, Paul and Silas have been the one that have been hauled up before the authorities. 
Uh, this time, it's also the Christians themselves. So it's Jason and the other Christians who have to provide the surety. And whereas Paul was able to maybe buy a little bit of space for the Christians in Philippi, he was not able to do that for the Christians in Thessalonica. And so we should not imagine that just because Paul and Silas left that the Jewish people of Thessalonica would have let up on their resistance and hostility toward the church there in Thessalonica. Uh, so they are dealing with this, you know, sus being suspect that the authorities are going to see them at least skeptically now because they are now branded as troublemakers. Uh, and the Jewish people may be, again, actively inciting against them, causing great distress and difficulty, uh, very possibly being kicked out of the synagogue, therefore being disconnected from their Jewish connections, uh, which would have been a very significant challenge. So, and throughout the first letter to the Thessalonians, Paul is very clear that they have been going through suffering. They have gone through distress, that they had been suffering the same thing from the Jewish people as believers in Judea did in 1 Thessalonians 2, 14 through 16. And so think about it. They are now dealing with the significant persecution for a faith that they had believed in for uh, two months at most, which is just absolutely uh, dumbfounding, right? And we would understand why Paul is lamenting it. Paul is very concerned. Paul wonders if they've even continued to believe or have they fallen away. And we can only imagine uh, the joy that Paul feels when he hears that the church in Thessalonica not just stood in the face of that opposition, but loved Paul, wanted to see Paul again, and were growing and being strengthened in their faith in the midst of that persecution. And Paul thinks very powerfully about them, very deeply. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, 7 and 8, he, he compares himself to a nursing mother uh, when it comes to his love for the Christians in Thessalonica, that they would prove willing to not only give the gospel, but are very lives for you. And to think that these people didn't even know about Paul. Paul had no idea who these people were two months earlier. And yet he's able to say such things. Speaks to the way that Paul worked with people, trusted people, loved the people that he was working among. And how deeply this relationship was. We would also talk about the fact that Paul was clearly very confident in his masculinity and how many men today would prove willing to use such a feminine illustration uh, to demonstrate uh, the love for other, for other human beings, let alone other men, right? Uh, nevertheless, we can see there's this deep connection here that was forged very quickly, but it remained a very profound bond. Paul is able to say in 1 Thessalonians 7 through 10 that the Christians of Thessalonica became an example to all who believe in Macedonia and Achaia, that from them had sounded forth the word of the Lord in Macedonia and in Achaia, and any place that the word of God has gone forth, that they don't need to say anything. For others have heard that the life that they had uh, and how they had turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God. And so, again, it's this cosmopolitan place, so the word got out about the Thessalonian Christians and their great faith. And Paul calls them his glory and his joy because of the fact that they had remained so steadfast in the faith. And that was true even when he wrote the second lesson letter. We need to make sure, yes, there are challenges that Paul addresses in these letters, but these challenges don't mean that they have um, abandoned the faith. It, it means that they're still growing in their faith. I mean, we should not be at all confused. The, the church is a strong and mature church. They had grown very quickly. Persecution did not hinder them. It, in fact, made them hold fast to their faith, to grow in their faith very deeply to the point where they're very mature Christians in a very short amount of time. And this confounds the modern narrative, what looks at persecution as this great hindrance to the faith. 
Uh, and this is not that we're to invite or welcome persecution, but our work that we try to do in order to go out of our way to avoid it may be part of our difficulty and part of our challenge, because the church in Thessalonica is there to remind us that uh, Christians who are born in the crucible of persecution uh, glorify their God, and that it is a catalyst for growth and spiritual development. It need not be uh, a sentence of death and decay. And it's important for us to see that when we look at the kind of conduct that Paul exhorts with the church in Thessalonica. Whenever he writes a letter, he takes opportunities to exhort regarding conduct. Uh, but what's interesting in, in, when it comes to the Thessalonian correspondence in chapter 4, verses 1 and 9, is that he says that he has no re reason to write to them. He has no need to write to them about it because they're already doing what God wanted them to do. And they're already loving one another the way that God wanted them to do so. But Paul wants to remind them, particularly about challenges that they have, mostly because they are Gentile Christians coming out of a pagan environment, that they need to avoid sexual morality. You know, he says that uh, God's will for them is their sanctification, which is a very important thing that God, God's will for all of us, our sanctification. For the Gentiles there, in a world awash with various forms of sexual morality that were justified, he says that they needed to avoid that. And particularly his concern, you can see, is that they shouldn't wrong one another. There should not be any sexual morality among the fellow Christians. Not that he's trying to justify if they went outside, but especially the concern about those uh, with whom they are associating. And so he tells them also to love more and more. Um, but he doesn't need to, because the, the Christians of Thessalonica love one another, but they also love all their fellow Christians. They provided benevolence to Paul and other brethren in need. Uh, we have to remember the Thessalonians are part of the Macedonians who are providing for the needy saints in Jerusalem in Romans 15.23, and who did so beyond their means in 2 Corinthians 8 that we talked about with Philippi uh, in our last edition as well. And uh, some from Thessalonica were probably part of those who brought assistance to Paul while he was in Corinth. Um, he told them not to be weary and well-doing, but he didn't have much to fear about that. And so they were a healthy group of Christians who were mature in their faith, despite a lot of the challenges that they were going through, and they did that very quickly. We have to remember that when Paul is able to come in the Philippian church, it's much later down the road, not suggesting that the church in Philippi didn't also have the same type of growth and persecution. But again, this is all happening not long after the church is being founded. So there is a challenge in Thessalonica, and the challenge is eschatology. Things are overall very good, but there's some concern about the end times. And we can understand that because the Christians going through the persecution are seeing that, you know, they're they're really looking forward to Jesus' return. And in the first letter, Paul says sees that there's some concern that maybe some of the Thessalonian Christians have died while this, this stuff has gone on. And they're worried that if they've died, they're not going to be raised from the dead, and they're going to miss out on the resurrection, because they, they're not alive when Jesus returns. And so the whole reason Paul's writing in the First Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18, which is normally taken for 5,000 different other reasons, is to say that, no, 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 no. Those who are alive will not precede those who are asleep in Jesus. Asleep in Jesus is a common Christian euphemism for death. In fact, he says, those in Christ who are dead will rise first. And then we with them will be transformed. So the real issue, of course, with makes sense with resurrection, right? Uh, the real question of the resurrection is what happens to those who haven't died to need to be raised, right? Uh, and so Paul answers that also, even though that's not the direct question there, by telling us that uh, they will be transformed. They will all rise to meet the Lord in the air. And also important to meet, note that that is the verse that many want to make out to be the rapture, but that Paul really leaves you hanging there. He doesn't really say what happens afterward. And many assume he means that everybody goes up with Jesus, up into heaven, uh, when in fact the language of meeting him would suggest that in fact they are meeting him there to help escort him down for the judgment and, and anything else going on there. And then, in, beginning at chapter 5, which is the same context, 
uh, is a reminder that for when it comes to when Jesus returns, the time of seasons, he's going to come like a thief in the night. They're not going to know exactly when that's going to happen and why it's so important for them to be vigilant and to be ready for his return. And we have no reason to doubt that the church took that message uh, from that first letter and took comfort in it. Uh, but there's still challenges by eschatology. And in Second Thessalonians, we see that there are some who've written to them, probably, trying to say the Lord had returned. And so they're very, very concerned because they didn't want to miss out on Jesus' return. And so Paul had to tell them, look, 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 you know, that's not, don't be disturbed by letter. You'll know what's going to happen because some things haven't happened yet. Yes, he's going to return like a thief in the night, but certain things have to happen. And this is not the time to try to get into the man of sin that Paul is talking about there in great detail, except for the fact that whatever the Madison is, it's already at work there in the first century and would continue to work afterward. And it's after all of his work is done that, in fact, they would, uh, that we would expect the return of the Lord. But there's something even more disconcerting for Paul, and that's what we talk about in chapter 3, that there were some who had uh, quit their work job and lived idly because they expected uh, likely that the Lord was going to come to any time to deliver them. Uh, and this is not just something that happened in Thessalonica. This is something that happens anytime that you have a lot of really fervent uh, expectation of Jesus' return. Because uh, anytime people really start expecting Jesus to return, they uh, so a lot of people quit their jobs and, and do everything to expect Jesus. And you can understand that, right? If you've come to a firm belief that Jesus is coming back in two or three or four years at a fixed date, then you can understand why people would you know, quit their job and try to fully devote themselves to that. Uh, but the challenge here is is what we see in Second Thessalonians, which is that in Thessalonica, these Christians now didn't have a job, so they were going about being busybodies, meddling in other people's affairs. And so that's why Paul says that, look at our example. While we were with you, we were working. We worked so that we would not be a burden to anybody. And that means that you should follow that example. And even when we told you if a person would not work, uh, they should also not eat. And so we want to be very clear what's going on with that context. In, in the church of Thessalonica, there's some Christians who, in their fervent desire for the Lord to return, have quit working, even though they were working and could continue to work. And and if they're not working, if they're being supported, they very well be supported by family or perhaps even the church. And so Paul says that you need to mark those people and have nothing to do with them if that's what they're doing, uh, but not to admonish them, uh, not to treat them as an enemy, excuse me, but to admonish them as a brother, to realize that these are not your real enemy, but they need to be chastened so that they can know they need to go back to work and to re return in full communion. Uh, this is not Paul trying to say that people who cannot find work should not eat. This is not a suggestion that people who are not able to work because of disability or, or various forms of distress should not eat. This is not a limitation on Christians seeking to help those who are in need. This is looking at a specific situation here, and, and one that you can see in other places when there are some people who could work but choose not to and go about and become busybodies and idlers and cause all kinds of difficulties and why they need to be rebuked. So we can see how these, these issues are there. We can understand why they're there. Uh, but we should not, again, let those color how we look at the whole church, to realize that the church of Sonica is a, a really strong example for it. It's a mature church, and, and, and one that grew in its maturity very quickly because of all the things that they had endured. A church that had existed for only a couple months was called upon to persevere through trials of persecution, and it didn't lead to the collapse of the group. In fact, they remained steadfast and were strengthened. They became pure in their faith because of it that uh, maturity and strength aren't just to older, more established churches, that the crucible of persecution can refine Christians very quickly. 
Some of them suffered for the name of Jesus, and they took their commitment to him very seriously. They loved one another. And yeah, there were some concerns about what was going to happen in the end times. But they took their concerns to Paul, and they were willing to listen to his correction. And they were willing to do the things that they were supposed to do. So we may not suffer persecution like the church of Thessalonica, but we can still uh, find comfort and encouragement in their witness, and that we should certainly strive to maintain the same kind of faith as they did, and to understand that a committed group of Christians can survive the crucible of persecution in this world, and they can represent a beacon of faith that can spread through the whole world and be an encouragement to many. We're so thankful that you've joined us. We look forward to continuing our conversation next time, and we get to uh, carry on, and our next conversation will be about the congregation everybody loves to hate on, uh, the church in Corinth, and so we'll talk more about that next time, Lord willing, and may the, uh, the Lord bless and keep you until we're able to meet again. 